Thank you very much for, for hosting uh, this, uh, this talk. Uh, you have heard about all sorts of people and institutions. So again, today, as I have done yesterday, I have to um, um, put up this disclaimer. So this is really a, um, how can I say, free, democratic, individual uh, talk. <clears throat> and please don't think uh, for the slightest minute that uh, the Swiss Army is speaking or that I am representing this or that institution or the University of Oxford or, or who knows what, uh, because then everybody gets in, into, into trouble. Um, this is what I want to talk to you about today. And this is a picture which I really enjoy. The Swiss Army does not have a navy. And I regret it, because that, that would be my, my dream job, I have to say. Uh, so we don't have a navy, but um, we have ideas, we have, we have thoughts, we have strategic uh, thought. And I use this picture, I like it very much. I don't play golf, by the way, and I don't pilot a helicopter, by the way, as well. Uh, but I like this picture because it makes us think um, of things in a new way, in a different way. And I have to tell you a little bit of a story that explains uh, why uh, I thought that this picture was so fantastic. Uh, this was the summer of 2010. And as you know, in the summer of 2010, there was an earthquake that ravished um, a small island um, of Haiti. And we're still living in the aftermath and the consequences of this earthquake of uh, Haiti. Well, on that very day, I was at the uh, newsroom of the Swiss uh, TV, evening TV news, and all sorts of bulletins, all sorts of uh, information was coming in. And, you know, the number of people who had uh, deceased and what was going on and what the safety, security operations were, uh, the disaster relief and who was pledging what aid, a lot of information was, was coming in. And about 9 a.m., an information came, a statement uh, from the U.S. government that the uh, U.S. government was now sending two aircraft carriers to Haiti. And <clears throat> everybody in the newsroom kind of, you know, read this piece of news twice. That, what, what the hell is this? I mean, have the Americans really not understood what this was about? This is an earthquake. What is the relationship between an earthquake, a natural catastrophe, disaster, an act of God, uh, and sending two large military vessels with the thousands of troops and combat aircraft and, and whatever you can imagine uh, moving or sailing with these aircraft carriers? And people started thinking and became very um, scared because immediately people started thinking, looking at the history of Haiti, well, this is another invasion. So this will not be the second, it will now be potentially the third military invasion um, of, the, of the island. And of course, the government of Haiti, under a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, a lot of terrible things happening, lack of communication, lack of understanding of all of the things going on, you can imagine what they must have felt in this crisis, the government of Haiti immediately issued a warning to say, 
these ships will not be authorized in our territorial waters uh, because we, we don't want your help, we don't want soldiers, we don't want thousands of paratroopers in our, in our streets as, uh, past, as, as in the past. So everybody was very frustrated and nobody understood what this was really all about. And so I'm going to ask you that question. Why, what were these two aircraft carriers doing off the coastline of Haiti? Why? You don't need an aircraft carrier to do that. And, and why would you send, I mean, why send military vessels to, to the rescue of, that's, that's not really what they, what they need. So precisely two nuclear powered aircraft carriers, four nuclear reactors, well, they supplied the fresh water to the disaster-stricken population of Haiti for the first month of the catastrophe of the, of the disaster because nothing was working on the, on the island. And of course, this is typically one of the situations where no journalist was ever capable of coming up with this answer. Nobody aired this. Uh, and of course, everybody still has today, six years later, uh, the impression, ah, oh, well, you know, the Bush administration responded to a humanitarian crisis with military uh, force and showing the flag, etc. Of course, we know better, but nobody has rectified, nobody has corrected uh, this, uh, this view. So I think this picture is interesting. In short, uh, because somebody over lunchtime said that uh, I needed some actable conclusions. So I, I always start with the conclusion. That way you can cut me at any moment. So the actual takeaway point is in 10 years, we will be using exactly the same hardware, the same military hardware as we have today. I'm a Star Wars fan, don't get me wrong, okay? But let's be honest, the, 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 the gadgets, the systems, etc., that we're talking about, they may or they may not be developed and they may or may not reach the troops, but we will be using in 10 years pretty much the same kind of hardware that we're already using or seeing today. What is new is that we may be using this hardware in a way that was never designed, never envisaged by the engineers, by the people who designed them. Think about the aircraft carrier, think about certain airplanes that were never meant to be refueling tankers. Well, the fact of the matter is now you've got to do this as well. So this is, this obliges us to, to think of using things in a, in a different way. And then my second conclusion, I will talk about somebody you may know, uh, last name Clausewitz. Clausewitz, an important fellow. So I'll say how we can reinterpret and how actual, how contemporary Clausewitz is today. This is what we're going to talk about because this is today the big issue around the world. The big issue around the world. Of course, yesterday evening we were having a discussion about a threat assessment and risk management and the 23 pages of different threats and risks and scenarios and what have you, etc. So of course, I, I feel kind of silly telling you this is the major risk, threat, problem, issue that we have to resolve. But I will support this with an argument. Why is terrorism so important? It has nothing to do with numbers. 
if we look at the numbers of people who have died as a result of terrorist attacks in the last year, I can tell you in Europe it's 270 people. That's less than people who have had an accident with a truck, with a lorry, in, in the past 12 months in the European Union. So it's, it has nothing to do with uh, numbers. So why is terrorism so important? It's, it's, it's a gut feeling. It's an emotional aspect. It is the fact that terrorism is probably the only kind of threat today which threatens, which attacks, which impacts every single link in our security chain. Think about that. From intelligence gathering, because we are pretty much powerless. I mean, yes, I know I will offend people, and yes, this is not politically correct. But to believe that intelligence services or law enforcement agencies will be able to predict and arrest and stop and capture and deal with problems before they happen, I will err on the cautious side, okay? I'm not elected uh, and I'm not running for, for anything, but I, but I will err on the cautious side. Things will happen, will continue to, to happen. Think about law enforcement, about passive security measures. Um, a couple of months ago, someone took a 19-ton truck, a delivery truck, and killed over 80 people. So you can have the best risk management plan, but there will always be some flaw that can be exploited by someone. It doesn't mean that you have to give up your job and your efforts to try to prevent all of this from happening. But unfortunately, generally, we are more reactive than we can actually preempt what is going to happen. And probably the next attack will not be a re-edition of the, of the previous attack. So in terms of passive security measures, etc., we will probably be able to do only so much because equipping every, sim, every single commercial airplane with all of the protection gadgets against all the types of man pads around the world and you know maybe the airplane will blow up as a result of something else. So in the end, uh, we have to be realistic as well. Terrorism questions and puts a lot of pressure and stress at our governance, at our democratic values, at our democratic and lawful legal organizations because there is a sense that we're not doing enough. There's a sense, there's a popular belief, feeling, emotion, well, you know, the government does not have a response to this particular kind of threat. So a lot of governments are today under pressure from uh, terrorism. Um, let's talk about human rights. Let's talk about values, democratic values, humane values. Um, I come from a country which uh, has seen 76 people go to Syria at one moment or another to fight the jihad. Well, you know, that is freedom of movement. That is, um, you know, freedom of uh, 
conviction. Uh, people have a, have a cause and they want to fight for this cause, etc. So all of the freedoms pretty much are encompassed in the fact that you would want to go and fight to liberate, to combat uh, whatever evil uh, you, you have painted on, on the wall. Well, at the same time, if these people come back, what do you do? We have a legal problem in Switzerland today. What do you do with these people? Uh, there is right now no terrorism law in Switzerland. None. Does not exist. Not in the books. Um, what do you do if you consider that these people may be dangerous because they have been trained, they have killed people, they have done terrible things? Um, okay, but uh, proving that they have killed unlawfully abroad uh, necessitates a very bureaucratic, a lengthy process, and then what do you do? The worst that you can probably uh, uh, inflict upon them is something like eight years in jail under the Swiss legal system. Um, <clears throat> okay, what do you do uh, after eight years plus one day? It, it, it raises a whole series of questions. It raises uh, questions and pressure on the um, religious freedoms that we have in our, in our countries. Uh, freedom to believe in whatever you want, uh, even if it's something very wrong, even if it means to do bad things to, to other people. It puts an enormous amount of stress on integration, uh, you know, being able to live together, diversity, you can use different words, it poses enormous amounts of problems to our society as a, as a whole. And that is why I believe terrorism is such a big issue in our democracies because it puts pressure on every single step of our security apparatus um, on our governance. So this is uh, what I would like to, uh, to, to keep in mind for our discussion. Um, <coughs> terrorism, jihad is, a, is an issue, uh, but I think that there are other issues that we also need to, uh, to raise. One is whether we have fallen back into a Cold War mode. I'm happy to say a few words about that. And of course, I have to talk about what has been going on in Ukraine and Eastern Europe uh, because of that. And last but not least, uh, I have to talk about Europe because it's always somebody else's fault and it's always somewhere else that things are happening. But if you haven't helped, if you're not doing your part, if you're not being a responsible security actor, then you're also part of the problem. So I'll talk about uh, what is going on today in um, in Europe. The context, here are some pictures, we could go on and on and on about the context, but I like this graph. I like this graph which was made by The Economist, which you cannot read because it's too small. Um, you can't read, but let me explain this graphically. You have here depicted all of the world's conflicts between the year 1946. 1946 was the signature of the United Nations Charter and 2012, but you know, it's not a stretch to say today. So long story short, from this graph, you can see that war is not a thing of the past. War is still extremely present with us, and we're not living in a particular decade or era of peace. These are the armed conflicts taking place somewhere in the world, and in short, I can tell you this, these are the numbers of the International Committee of the Red Cross. There are today, as we speak, 45 armed conflicts around the world. 
That's a lot. That's a lot. 45 armed conflicts across the world. In the period of the 1990s, when people have uh, spoken of the dividends of peace, we had on average between 16 and 18 armed conflicts. Today, we have three times more armed conflicts than after the, just after the fall of the Berlin Wall. This represents almost a quarter of the, po the world's population directly or indirectly affected by war. If you look at the evolution of these conflicts and the types of conflict, well, you see this. A lot of authors, a lot of researchers have said, well, interstate or international armed conflicts, the, the dark side over here, are a thing of the past. This is no longer so important. And today, most of the wars, most of the conflicts will be non-international armed conflict. They will be civil wars. So I've heard this time and time and time again. And here's the catch 22. We have a myopia. We, we are not seeing things clearly. And in the international regulatory system, international law has a, has a bias, has a myopia. If you look at the way that these civil wars, that these internal conflicts uh, are happening, let's take Sudan. It's a fantastic example. Sudan has had separatists in the south region of Darfur. And so this is a non-international armed conflict because everybody is within the same country, within the same borders. OK. But we all know that the separatists in Darfur are, in fact, supported by a neighboring country, which is Chad. And you know what? Chad has problems with insurgents in the south of its own country. And these insurgents are supported by Sudan. OK, nobody's following. So here we have two, legally, officially, we have two non-international armed conflict. We have two civil wars. But we know better. We know for a fact that, in fact, these two conflicts are linked. And we have the same protagonists. We have the same supporters. They're proxy wars. It's the same thing when you talk about the conflict taking place in Syria today. Of course, legally, this is a non-international armed conflict. But there's half a dozen countries that are invested and that have boots on the ground. Of course, not the United States of America. Uh, but there are at least half a dozen countries that are implicated in this conflict. And we have a bias. We're not seeing things clearly. What is most worrisome is the fact that in the last few years, the number of international armed conflict has substantially risen. So those people who were saying in the UN, in some countries, well, the wars of tomorrow will be little wars. And some people, some authors, have said the little wars have become the big wars. OK, now we have to worry again about those more strategic, those international armed conflicts. They're coming back. Another chart, and this is an interesting chart. It shows you the uh, number of conflicts that have been resolved. There's a truce. There's a peace treaty in yellow over here. And in red, you have the number of new conflicts, emerging conflicts. The problem is, today, there are more conflicts that are starting. It's easier to start a conflict than to resolve a conflict. 
Okay? And at the same time, the length, the duration of armed conflict is becoming longer and longer and longer. To what extent? Today, one-third of all of the armed conflicts are over 30 years old. Who is below 30 in this room will immediately grasp that these conflicts pose specific problems because you're not trying to resolve a fight, a struggle between two protagonists who have themselves started the fight. You are now talking at once or twice removed people, the next generation, the generation after the next generation, who don't necessarily even know why the fighting started in the first place. And you have people, think about this, who tell you, I am Palestinian and I come from Jaffa and you know, my grandfather had this plot of land and you know, one day I will go back to my family's uh, grounds and I will build a house and I will bring my children. Okay, what, what are the legal rights of this person to these lands? Zilch, absolutely zero. You know, there's this thing called refugee law. Refugees, people who are recognized and who receive the statute of a refugee have rights. But the children of refugees don't necessarily have these rights. And the children of the children of refugees don't necessarily have these rights either. So think again. Things become much more complicated as these conflicts um, how can I say, bo are, are bogged down and these, um, these uh, protracted uh, conflicts pose problems, pose issues within themselves. This lecture is not about the history of war and the types of armed conflict, etc. Um, but I do want to say two things about the most recent trends, the so-called fourth generation warfare and hybrid war. Fourth generation warfare. I have a lot of respect for uh, General Rupert Smith, who was my commander when I was in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina in the 1990s. And Rupert Smith, in this book, and I saw it in the library downstairs, so I was very happy. I have a signed copy, by the way. Uh, in this book, there is a fantastic, extremely important notion, the notion of spoilers. Do you know what a spoiler is? What is a spoiler? This is perhaps one of the most significant new events, new uh, discoveries, um, evolution, uh, in the evolution of, of conflict. What is a spoiler? Well, until now, from jousting in the Middle Ages uh, to uh, insurgency and revolutionary warfare, we've always fought wars pretty much in the way that there was a, let's say, a blue team and an orange team. There, there were two teams or three teams or six teams, who cares? But they were all playing the same game and they all had the same objective. The objective was to stay on top of the hill, the objective was to sc score more, the objective was to take the other's queen and king and so on and so forth. You get the idea. Everybody wanted the same thing. And so when your job is to broker a deal, to broker a peace deal, 
I'm not going to say it's easy, but you pretty much know how you're going to get there because everybody wants this same coffee, wants this same iPhone, this same material, this same location. So it, you're, you will broker a deal. Something will have to give, but you'll find a solution to this. Well, Rupert Smith says the wars of the 1990s and today are different. They're different because perhaps, arguably, in the first time in history, you don't have everybody fighting for the same reasons. And this means that some people may fight for economic interests, others for political aspects, interests, others for geopolitical and whatever, others for another, a, a cause, religion, whatever. Everybody can understand that. But it's even worse when some people, some uh, combatants, some fighters, some parties to the conflict are there and they're not interested in peace. Think about that. If you broker a deal, if you have a peace, some people may lose. Think about that. Think about a party to the conflict that may have to um, become less of a, an authoritarian regime and have elections. Well, that's a problem. That's a problem. So maybe continuing the war uh, allows you to go on with a certain number of processes that are not absolutely human rights compliant or democracy compliant. Perhaps you have some people who are making a buck because they can raise taxes for as long as they want, as long as there's a war going on. And perhaps some people will not have any opposition in their country because they're the war leader and in their region uh, there's not going to be anybody who will contest their power as long as there's an insurgency, as long as there's an enemy, and so on and so forth. So the concept of spoilers, I think, is a very important, interesting one. Today, not everybody necessarily fights for the same reasons, and some people may actually not even be interested in peace to start with. And so this is a whole other ball game to try and negotiate peace. Hybrid war, we can spend the whole evening deciding or not what hybrid war is, but fundamentally there are components that are asymmetric or unconventional, and conventional is back. Conventional is the new unconventional. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to, to say this as a cavalry officer. Uh, conventional is the new thing, the new kid on the block, and it plays a very important role. This guy, um, very short. If you write a book called Soft Power in 1994, and 10 years later you write another book called Smart Power, I call this, oops, I made a mistake. And between these two books, between Soft Power and Smart Power, two things happened. Two things happened the exact same year, 1995, two genocides, one in Srebrenica, the other one in Rwanda. And so those people who said soft power cuts the defense spending, we don't need the military, we don't need kinetic power anymore, we don't need bombing people into uh, pacifism and, and so on and so forth, well these people realized there is a problem, there's an inherent problem with soft power. The inherent problem is that first of all, it may be very expensive. 
it may be very expensive. You have no guarantee that this might work and you can't say if this will work in two years, in five years, in 10 years. So as long as you're willing to give money, okay, go ahead, fine. But there's no guarantee that this may or, or may not work. It may be more expensive. Not only that, but on the people you need this to work the most, the evil, the, the bad guys, the, the bad guys who hurt their own people, the authoritarian, the f fanatics, etc. you know that this works the least on these kinds of people. And we've known this since the Blitz. We've known this since Dresden. We've known, I mean, I don't need to give you other examples. We know this. So unfortunately, those people who believed in soft power, and of course, this was very, a very interested um, uh, theory, um, it may work, but then again, it may not work. And in those cases where it doesn't work, then you need to uh, reestablish, to, you, you need to provoke, you need to use power, hard power, in, uh, in some cases. Terrorism. I'm not going to make a long, long presentation about terrorism. I'm going to be very, very fast on this. Did you know that there's dozens of UN Security Council resolutions against terrorism. There's international obligations to every country in the world to fight against terrorism. But there is no definition of terrorism. There is no internationally accepted, there is no UN definition on terrorism. It's just a fact. And nobody wants it. I mean, you may be interested in writing your PhD dissertation on the definition of terrorism, but nobody in the UN, nobody in New York is going to put this forward and nobody's going to accept this. Think about it as something incredibly convenient for everybody because anytime you have an enemy of the state, anytime you have a problem, you can just flash this terrorism problem and well, essentially everything is, is here to support you and your actions to, to deal with these terrorist issues. How does terrorism work? That's, a, that's another uh, thesis, that's another evening uh, class. I'm happy to do this another time. Another problem that we have is that there are religious believers in asymmetric warfare. I'm sorry, but I have an issue with asymmetric warfare because a lot of people misunderstand what asymmetric warfare is about. Symmetric warfare, this is the theory, none I mean, nobody who has been in a shooting war has ever encountered a symmetric war. You, you, you see this playing chess. You see this playing a video game, maybe, but not in, in real life. A dissymmetric uh, confrontation, this is the Gulf War. You have more of the same kind of equipment, or you have better equipment, better trained troops, etc. So now, what is asymmetric warfare? As I said, this is a fundamental misunderstanding, unfortunately. What is asymmetric warfare? There's two ways that you can understand what asymmetric warfare is about. It's turning your enemy's strengths into a weakness. Okay, but why would you... Well, because if you're, so if you're going against the United States, you're going to target our network, so you're going to target you cyber... Good, but you can do this in a purely symmetric kind of confrontation. Yeah, but we're geared for responding in a certain way. We, don't, we, we would not be necessarily geared at 
I agree with you completely that you need to target the opponent's weaknesses, but you do this two gladiators who have the exactly the same equipment, symmetric, will be trying to hit the opponent's weak spots in exactly the... I agree with you, but that's not asymmetric warfare. Okay, so fantastic. This is one of the two ways of understanding asymmetric warfare when you have two forces of a different nature, state versus non-state, a powerful conventional army versus insurgents, a terrorist group, etc. Yes, okay. That's one way to understand. That's, that's how most people describe, define asymmetric warfare. And once you have said that, well, this only takes us so far because we haven't really understood what the problem was. The problem is this. Asymmetric warfare is not an asymmetry of means, the nature or the level of the forces, like you said. It's an asymmetry of objectives. Two forces have completely different objectives. For example, it is not the fact that ISAF is made up, is an international assistance force made up of conventional, professional, military and special forces and air power and this and that and the other versus farmers, peasants, people who take arms against this established force. That is not the problem because at the end of the street you have one person with a gun and on the other side of the block you have also another person with a gun. Uh, you find yourself in this symmetry again. The problem is this. What is the objective, what is the mission of ISAF? Defeat terrorism, yes? What else? To build up the Afghan state. Okay, state building. Which means, which implies the unity of Afghanistan. Okay, which implies the legitimacy of its head of state and government. Which means functional institutions, which means peace, which means development, which means a working economic system which means an administration, which means freedoms, which means democracy, which means all sorts of fantastic things. Well, here's the problem. This is a large, professional, effective force, but their objective is through the top. It's, it's unrealistic, it's unreachable. Win against terrorism, unreachable, cannot, does not comply, does not apply, cannot win, cannot achieve this objective. The other side, what is the objective of the other side? Keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. Forget it, keep fighting, keep fighting. Always keep fighting, okay? So the asymmetry that you have is a big army, a lot of money, and an objective which is through the top, which is impossible to reach. In one word, security. And on the other side, you have a small force of people who are far from being dilettantes, by the way, okay, 
But these people have an incredibly simple objective to reach, and that is keep fighting, or in another word, insecurity. And this is one of the big problems that we have to get our leaders to understand. Security is not the opposite of insecurity, or insecurity is not the reverse of security. We're talking about two completely different things. Security, for short, this is something objective. It's quantifiable. Security on the road means the number of accidents, the number of people who have died on the road for the last 12 months. It means the number of people who have been pickpocketed in downtown Venice, not Venice, your Venice Beach, I'm talking about my Venice, Venezia. Okay, so the pick, number of pickpockets, that's statistical, that's quantitative, that's objective. Insecurity is a purely gut feeling, emotional, subjective thing. And unfortunately, security and insecurity are two completely different things. You will not resolve the feeling of insecurity by providing objective security. Of course, it's one of the ways that will get you closer to responding to this sentiment of insecurity. But it's not the only way, and it's probably not the best way. So we have to think again. And you're, of course, all aware of this concept of lines of operations and different targets, different objectives, etc. So for our political leadership, for our military leaders, we have to address the security problem, yes, but we also have to address the insecurity, the sentiment of insecurity. We also have to address this. Long story, can't do everything. Um, I said I would say something about Clausewitz. Clausewitz is a fantastic guy who is absolutely vital to understand today's world. Clausewitz had this fantastic uh, quote saying that war is the continuation of politics by other means. What does that mean? We could have our whole evening on this sentence. But Clausewitz said something truly revolutionary. He said, there is not a, a state of peace and a state of war. You cannot wait until war is upon us in order to mobilize strengths and to train people because you will always be too late. So Clausewitz, in fact, developed this kind of a model whereby, well, the evolution of your political relations with another country goes up and down, the tensions mount, and okay, you agree that at a certain level, these tensions, this political uh, relation that you will have will fall into a state of war, and then maybe the tension can, can be quieted down, etc. But, but that's not the end of the story. You still need to continue uh, to, to facilitate relations so that you, you get to a more stable peace situation. Unfortunately, our international legal regulatory system still functions in this way. We just have to understand that.
Okay? So the distinction today between war and peace is almost academic. It's very theoretical. More people have died in Mexico from you know, military weapons, from, from war fighting weapons, than in Iraq since 2006. Okay? But people still go to vacation uh, to the beach in Mexico, but of course they don't so much go to Iraq. You have countries that are at war, officially at war, Egypt, uh, is at war, uh, Israel officially at war, etc., and doesn't pose a specific problem. Um, so let's say that we have to work with this schizophrenia, this international political and legal schizophrenia. I said I wanted to, to talk about uh, three issues, and uh, because of time constraints, I need to uh, say a few words about Ukraine. What is the big problem? regarding the situation today in Ukraine. Why are we embarrassed with the way that this situation has become bogged down? Well, we are embarrassed, we are threatened, if you will, because of what happened between September and December 1991. In September 1991, you know the USSR split into 19 different republics, and in September of 1991, all of a sudden, each one of these 19 republics of the former Soviet Union had the right to a share of the cake, the share of the cake, I'm talking about nuclear weapons. I'm talking about the fact that Ukraine, as a very large republic, had the right to 33% of all of the stockpile of Soviet nuclear weapons. So, in terms of proliferation, that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. Going from five nuclear, legitimate nuclear-armed states to all of a sudden nearly 20, that's pretty poor in terms of evolution and uh, you know, being on the right side of history. So there was a lot of political pressure, and the United States played its part and did very well. The European Union played its part as well and tried to convince each one of these 18 former republics of the Soviet Union to surrender to give up their nuclear weapons and said if you give up these nuclear weapons, these nuclear uh, or strategic uh, bombers, uh, we will guarantee your borders, we will, we will provide for your safety and security. And so this is what is at stake today. This, it's a, it's a question of principle. Okay. We have the free world, the, the world, the global governance, the international community has essentially said to Ukraine, you don't need these nuclear weapons to defend yourself. We will ensure that the integrity of your territory, of your borders. And for 10 years, Ukraine was praised as the example to be followed in terms of nuclear disarmament, of low defense spending, 0.72% of its GDP, that's very low defense spending. Everybody said this is fantastic, this is the way to go, etc. Until the problems come up. And when the problems come up, of course, nobody's there. Nobody's home, nobody answers the phone, you're on your own, and this is pretty much the situation that Ukraine is finding itself in today. So of course there are 
loads of political implications, strategic implications. I'm not going to talk here about the present situation in the Ukraine. I'm just saying it is a major issue because if we want some form of organization and world peace and stability, we have to be aware that we can't just make empty promises and when something goes wrong, nobody answers the phone, oops, I'm sorry, we can't do that. Or we can do that once, uh, the second time it will, it will not work. This is the number of field training exercises. In red, you can understand this is Russia, and in blue, this is NATO. The number of field training exercises that have taken place in the year 2015, and this is indicative of the fact that the temperature is rising in Eastern Europe. It's just a fact. A um, number of um, months ago, um, I had a discussion in Oxford uh, precisely about this. We are now in a situation where the US military presence in Europe has tripled over the last two years. I don't know if you were aware of that, okay? But we have gone from one permanent brigade, and this was a light uh, a paratrooper airborne brigade based in Italy. Uh, we have gone now up to three permanent brigades, of course, by rotation, training regularly in Europe. So tripling the American military presence in Europe. Uh, if you thought that there was a pivot to Asia taking place these past few years, think again, because the numbers are saying something else, okay? Um, this was an extremely important summit, uh, an extremely important summit uh, on the 4th and 5th of September 2014. I'm saying this because it was my birthday. Uh, the Wales summit, the NATO summit, was extremely important because at that precise moment, the issue to be discussed was the following. What is the main threat of NATO? Is it the east or is it the south? The east, of course, that means Russia, and you can understand that all of the easternmost members of the alliance said Russia, 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 Russia. And then most of the other countries, unfortunately, said, okay, this is temporary. And in any case, we're not going to fix this crisis in Ukraine. So the real problem is the South. This is migration. This is Syria. This is global jihad. This is those kinds of problems. At the end of this conference in Wales, there was not really a decision. There was not really a common ground. And so we are kind of in between two chairs today with this situation. And there is not a clear strategic decision that was made either to one side or to the, um, or to the other. The BRICS and the rearmament in the BRICS, I'm not going to go into all sorts of details. Yesterday I talked about Russia. And so the only thing that I'm going to really say about Russia today is that Russia has a plan. They don't have much else, but they have a plan. And the plan was approved in 2007, and this is a major restructuring of the Russian forces, and the plan originally was that these new forces, these new brigades, the new strategy, would be in place by 2017, and what we're seeing today is that, well, they've missed the deadline. They've missed the deadline because uh, 
they have been invested in Ukraine, they have been invested in Syria, and so delays have been taking place. But fundamentally, today we're talking about 2020 uh, as being the objective for this reform. And fundamentally, what is this reform about? I call this the NATOization of Russia. It doesn't mean that Russia will join NATO anytime soon, but it means that Russia wants to have the same kind of equipment, the same kind of capacities, and the same kind of strategies and doctrine as, uh, as NATO. I'll be quick in order to come to the situation in Europe. Europe is the most complicated continent. I mean, it's, you know, it's not Central Asia. It's not Africa. Uh, Europe is more complicated to comprehend and to understand what's going on than any other place in the world. And this tells you a little bit about the complication, the complexity of the European defense architecture or security architecture. These are the four major stages of a European defense or security apparatus, if this makes any sense. As students, I can tell, I was a student once. Forget this, forget this. It's just a, it's, it's like tombstones, okay? It's just a list of bullet points and each of them was a successive failure. And it's going to continue to be failures because there's a lot of members of the European Union who don't want that to begin with. So they're sabotaging Remember what I said about spoilers? Okay, so the, the, the problems that we have in the military institutions, in politics today, it's not our enemies. I mean, you are never betrayed by your enemy, okay? The problem comes from our friends, of the people who are supposed to be our friends. So why is European defense so complicated? Because many countries have constitutional limits Germany, for example, after World War II, there, okay, just read this book, okay, this old book, and you will have pretty much a sense of what is going on and what is wrong and why there will not be in the foreseeable future a homegrown European defense or security apparatus and structure. In short, and I can do this with a very simple drawing. <clears throat> there have been two different solutions to how NATO and the European Union can cooperate. One, very simple, it's called the Berlin Accord right here. And it says, okay, we have Clausewitz again here. We have the threshold of war everything which is below the threshold of war, this is EU. Disaster relief, uh, rescuing hostages, humanitarian aid, all of that the EU can do, can spend a lot of money, the U EU does that well. Every time you have to shoot, shoot to kill, this is NATO, okay? That's the Berlin Agreement, and I will even say this works, it's very simple. It doesn't work anymore, and this was ruined in 2006. It was ruined for two reasons. Number one, there are some EU members who never got around, never understood this principle. And also, the, the United States ruined this purposefully because they were not happy with having all of the sexy, photogenic, 
you know, helping, aiding stuff. All the photogenic stuff is here in the EU's hand. And then every time you have to kill people and become the bad guy, that's Uncle Sam. So today, the architecture looks something like this. It's called the right of first refusal. So all of the problems arrive on NATO's desk. And what NATO chooses to ignore or doesn't want to handle, well, then it arrives on the desk of the EU. You have understood that today the EU does nothing. Okay? And if this falls even further, it gets on the UN's desk. Okay? So the EU, and I'm not criticizing, I was a military observer for the UN, I'm not criticizing, they're just doing an absolutely impossible job. When nobody else wants to handle a situation, this is when you call the UN. So don't blame the UN for being incompetent. They're just there because nobody else wants to solve the problem. Very, very simple. In Syria, I'll be very, very short here again. Two things. First, I want to talk about Russia in Syria, and then I want to talk about Turkey in Syria. Russia has played um, an interesting game, a dangerous game, and they have wanted to assert themselves as a global power. A lot of people believe that they have been relatively successful in that. I consider that they have not. They have missed their target. They have missed their target because Russia has invested up to 30% of their long-range strategic aviation in this conflict, and what have they achieved? Okay, they have been successful. The Syrian army has moved forward, but what have they achieved? With 30% of the strategic forces of Russia, they have put themselves at the same level as the United States with no boots on the ground. Drones and a couple of special forces. Okay? With 30% of their strategic assets, they are at the level of the United States with a couple hundred guys and gals. And they have put themselves truly at the level of a regional power, which is Turkey the airplanes that have been shot down to and from, etc. They have strategically put themselves, aligned themselves, essentially, with a regional power, which is Turkey. So it is a strategic failure from Russia because they have not managed to fulfill this particular objective of theirs to be recognized as a global power. Uh, they have demonstrated that they could achieve the status of, unfortunately, a regional power. Second thing, I don't read in crystal balls, but I've been following this conflict for a long time, and a lot of these peace talk discussions are taking place in Geneva, so I have to be there. And for the first time in five years in the Syrian conflict, we're seeing a new solution coming of age, let's put it this way. To, to make a long story short, in the five first years of the conflict, we have seen rather a separation of the country uh, between the northern rim, uh, which, of course, the Turks wanted to control, and they were supporting the um, 
rebel forces over here. They wanted to control this strip of land. And then let's say that you have a kind of sandwich, north-south sandwich. What we're seeing now is a completely different type of resolution that may all of a sudden take place. And that is the separation of uh, Syria within two or within three uh, yes, strips, stripes, strips. Uh, one here in the east, this is the uh, Assad regime and its army and the Christians who are there, who are fighting uh, strongly to support the regime. And of course, all of this is supported by Russia. And the main efforts are here in the north to try and create uh, territorial continuity. In the center, you have the Islamic State, ISIS, and here in the uh, west, you have the Kurds, supported by the United States of America, the UK, a couple of other allied forces. And what completely betrays this uh, development is this military operation from Turkey, this military operation which is taking place exactly here, which is essentially shielding uh, the ISIS um, on its uh, western border, well, this is in fact uh, an aim to protect ISIS against a, you know, a pincer movement to having to, to fight on two fronts. So essentially what we're seeing now more and more is the division of the country within these three uh, stripes uh, rather than uh, the solutions that have been developed um, previously. To conclude, I'll say uh, very briefly something about, not Clausewitz, but a close contemporary of Clausewitz, a Swiss general, Guillaume-Henri Dufour, the person you see here in the center of this uh, painting. Guillaume-Henri Dufour was, was many things. He was uh, the commander-in-chief of the Swiss army during the last civil war that we had that took place a couple of years before the American Civil War. He was the first director of the Swiss Military Academy in 1817. He was a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars. He was a geographer. He was a scientist. He was an engineer. He built bridges. Oh, and I forgot one important thing. He was one of the five founders of the Red Cross. So this guy and, and the, the person who managed to uh, broker to negotiate the first Geneva Convention. So this guy knew what he was talking about. Listen to him, not listen to me. And he said this, going into this civil war, he said to his officers, uh, the objective, our objective is not to win the war. We're soldiers. We know how to do this. This is, you know, this is our job. The real problem is not going to be winning the war. It's to win the peace. And we come back to Clausewitz. The war is not the problem. The war is not the objective. And still today, we are planning, we are developing plans to enter into a theater of operations, to enter a war, to start a war, to win a war. Okay, but the plan should have as its strategic objective not to win the war. It should have as its objective to win the peace. Until you have understood that, you will you know, maybe be successful tactically, operationally, but in the long run, this does not really serve the purpose. The only purpose, the only real victory, is once you have achieved the peace. This is extremely uh, significant, extremely important. The other, uh, pointed, the, the other point I wanted to make is, uh, you know, at the end, 
one has to be explicit. And the more we are in denial of certain things, like the Europeans being in denial of you know, the 2% GDP objective, we have to spend 2% GDP on defense. The more we are in denial, the more we continue with this, the more we are in denial that migration poses a security uh, issue, the more we are in denial that terrorism uh, you know, is a major threat to our values, to our democratic values, to who we are, to our societies. Uh, we will never really be able to, uh, to achieve our objectives. So thank you very much for your attention. never going to say that you've misunderstood anything I said, uh, but um, okay, so, I mean, we, we agree completely. Yes, they are, yes, they pose a threat uh, because they have intentions which are not the objective, the security and peace and stability objectives of Europe. That is absolutely true. Um, yes, they are developing all sorts of capabilities, and yes, the roadmap, we know it's, you know, NATO's last 15 years. I, I can go further. Um, they're good at it. They're good at it because they have understood that, um, for example, the situation in Crimea, the situation in, in Ukraine, Donbass, the situation in Georgia, the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, they're not interested in winning. They don't have a public opinion that requires them to show victory and move to something else. What are they interested in? They're, they're actually very happy with undetermined situation that will rot forever. Who cares? It's somebody else's problem. Yeah. Please. Marcos Vaquero from the Inter-American Defense Board. Uh, talking about Latin America, maybe we in Latin America don't have like these type of conflicts, uh, like um, real and official type of armed conflicts, but what we have is our military on the streets to fighting against organized crime. Mm -hmm. how, what, what can you talk about how this issue that we have in all the hemisphere? Okay. Um, my girlfriend is, is from Brazil, so I have to be careful uh, in what I say. In short, there has been a sense of Latin American exceptionalism in many, many different ways, uh, believing that globalization and uh, new economic developments somehow spared or would spare Latin America, that Latin America could always do things differently, etc. 
today, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. And if I look at the amount of military hardware that has been purchased, I won't talk about Brazil, you understand why, but uh, if I talk about Chile, if I talk about the efforts of Argentina to equip itself with uh, powerful modern uh, equipment, um, I won't even talk about Venezuela and, and so on, but you see that there's a lot of money, there's a lot of investment which is going into, into security. So I'm not so sure that uh, th there is such an exceptionalism anymore in Latin America. Uh, I may be wrong, but uh, uh, one, of the, one of the issues is also that, um, okay, I will talk about Brazil. Uh, Brazil is trying to portray itself as a respectable, important, significant power and, and actor, has invested a lot of effort into peacekeeping, UN peacekeeping, for example, in Haiti. We talked about Haiti before. Um, so yes, it's becoming more and more engaged uh, internationally. Um, so I expect that there will be developments if these developments are not taking place already. Coffee time. Please. in an economic matter to then eventually act as, uh, as, a, as a group that may need to be uh, protected later, like an alliance. Uh -huh. you know, they can switch that to a military alliance. Like okay, so wh which alliance are you talking about? So are we talking about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization? Okay, because there have been, if you look at the history of uh, collective security, there have been at least a dozen, if not more, different alliances that have taken place in that part of the world. Uh, I mean, Iran was uh, at, one, uh, at one point uh, one of the countries that was uh, seduced and, in, and, and also interested and participated heavily, and then these broke down successful, uh, successively. Um, so the only real security alliance that I can think of today and for the foreseeable future, actually, I can think of two. One is the uh, Visegrad. Uh, there's a lot of, I'm spending a lot of time in Budapest these days, so there's a lot of reflections taking place there because they feel that uh, they're the hardliners of NATO, they're the believers, the, the tried and true uh, partners of NATO, and they feel let down by other EU states or other NATO members. So Visegrad uh, may become all of a sudden an important security actor. I'm not talking about economics and, and other issues, but, uh, but that uh, will definitely play a role in the, in the future. Uh, it may expand, by the way, to other countries uh, shortly. Uh, the other one is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So I spent uh, quite a bit of time in, uh, in that part of the world, tried to find more, uh, find out more about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And unfortunately, among the main partners uh, in uh, the SCO, 
I don't think that there's a clear line. There's not really a, a roadmap. There's not a clear objective. To, to make a long story short, Russia wants the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to be an, um, a, 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 a NATO resistance alliance uh, for countries that feel threatened, uh, potential targets to uh, NATO. So the military aspect, the defense aspect is extremely important uh, for Russia. But if you ask the Chinese, at the top level, the Chinese will tell you that they're really not interested in the security aspects of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, whether this is true or a white lie or something else that you know we can discuss all evening. But fundamentally, they want this to be an economic cooperation uh, organism. And they're prepared to use this to share technologies. So yes, build nuclear power plants. Yes, uh, I mean, OK, with, with the security branding around this, you can do a whole lot of things. You can build harbors. You can build military facilities, et cetera. So the Chinese will fight against terror and, and so on and so forth. The, the Chinese are prepared to do that. But their real objective is commerce and transfer and, and doing business, opening markets. Yeah. I am curious about the Visegrad battle group. We've been hearing a lot of the last couple of years about that and yeah. about this. And since you're, you're involved with NATO, I, I've always wondered, since we seem to be having some difficulty with certain members of NATO regarding defending Ukraine, for instance, or maybe even there's a question when they're going to defend Eastern Europe. Um, could we not start shifting some support, economic support, or some kind of support to the Visegrad battle group so that they don't feel like they're left hanging out in the wind? Okay, so you're talking about two different things. So I now have to respond to two different questions. Visegrad is an alliance of countries, so cooperation between countries. You're talking about, okay, yeah. but here's the catch 22. The European Union has two battle groups has two battle groups, and these battle groups are formed and trained together, they're certified, and then they are available for a certain duration, that's four months, okay? So once every, I don't know how much time, once every couple of years, there will be a Visegrad battle group and there will be a Nordic battle group. But then the rest of the time, there will be a battle group made up of uh, 100 Dutch soldiers, 30 people from Luxembourg, and then 200 Austrians, and then who knows what, etc. So it's a it's on a rotation basis. So um, coming back to uh, what I said about Europe's bonsai armies, this is where we are at because uh, yes, you have those EU troops that are committed to NATO, those EU troops that are committed to the EU, um, so it's those two battle groups, high readiness battle groups, but it's also a number of multinational formations or brigades and so on and so forth, uh, which are not technically battle groups, though so they don't have the, the level of readiness uh, deployability that we were talking about. And here, uh, okay, so what? It's, uh, I mean, you're just changing the, the, the badges. You know, Velcro is a Swiss invention. <laughs> Should the international community sort of step in um, with the India-Pakistan situation 
and you know you have two nuclear powers that are always in, almost always in conflict. Um, should the international community and NATO or the EU um, be worried about this, or should they step in and try to defang both India and Pakistan with their border conflict? You're asking, uh, there's a baby crying, and you're asking, should you bring you know, cereal or a, a bottle, et cetera? Of course, of course. Uh, the problem is not that. The international community is prepared to help. It's prepared, you know, I, I'll bring my pen so that people can sign the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. That's, that's not the problem. The international com uh, community is, is very engaged in the, in the region but there's not really the will on the behalf of these two countries that you, that you talked about to accept this aid or to, to move forward towards a resolution of these conflicts. We come here to my definition of asymmetric warfare. You know why Pakistan has developed nuclear weapons. It's asymmetric. It's asymmetric because it's exactly the same situation if you look at Korea um, Korea or the, the South Korean uh, capital Seoul is uh, a couple of uh, what 30 miles from the uh, from the border from the 38th uh, parallel so you have a capital of one of these two countries which is close enough to the border that at any time without warning you could have a surprise air attack a raid and you know that's the end of the game that's the problem of Pakistan that's why they developed nuclear weapons and so in Geneva, we can serve coffee, we can, um, you know, we can uh, massage people, we can, uh, we can talk over, over breakfast, over, okay, we can talk uh, until the, the, the hell freezes over, but we need to resolve that emotional insecurity, that strategic insecurity. It's purely subjective. Um, if, if we demonstrate or if there are enough uh, reassurance mechanisms or confidence building mechanism uh, to simply to lower the threshold, once again, Clausewitz, to lower the threshold of this sentiment of insecurity, then of course there won't be the need for these defensive measures. But for the moment, I don't see a whole lot of countries prepared to deploy forces in the region to give reassurance. I'm not sure what kind of mechanism outside of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, I'll say something which is not politically correct, but uh, the United States is not a very credible uh, broker for the NPT. It is the country that has violated the most times the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So we need a new treaty, but then, so you see, it's a work in progress. Okay, I'm not into conspiracy theories. I was a great fan while I was young uh, of, of X-Files, but I, 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 don't, I don't subscribe. 
Um, and I don't think that Russia in any shape or form or way has the ability to manipulate uh, the migration crisis today. Uh, if you really want to know what I think, I think the migration crisis is self-inflicted, self-inflicted. And I think that the more the, the, more the EU uh, says that it will come to the help, that it will uh, find solutions and so on and so forth, the, the more signal it is giving out, you know, come over, don't, don't, uh, don't worry, we'll, we'll take care of you. So unfortunately, the, the signals that are being given for all sorts of reasons are the wrong kinds of signals. Um, I don't think that has, this has much to do with Russia, to, to be quite honest. Whether this poses a security threat or problem, yes, of course, uh, we know that. Um, as I said, I've been to Hungary a number of times, and I can tell you that Hungary also um, has, a, has a short memory. Uh, I said this to, to three, mem uh, to three uh, uh, ministers. Uh, Hungary has sometimes a short memory because recently, in the recent years, Hungary was part of the problem of migration to Western Europe. I'm talking about the Rom, uh, the Roma population, for example, and you know, Hungary and some other countries simply didn't want to look at the problem. So unfortunately, we, yes, we are dealing with a problem. This has security implications, but I don't see in any way where Russia has anything to, to, to do with this particular crisis. Perhaps, if we're talking about conspiracy theories, I, li I like debate about conspiracy theories, but think about this. What has changed between the real Cold War and what we could call the Cold War 2.0? Okay, if we compare both situations. It's not the number of nuclear warheads, it's not the, the, the reach or the range of submarines or, or airplane, etc. What has really changed? And this is the interesting, important part. During the Cold War, it was very simple. The right-wing uh, po political parties, the, the liberals, uh, capitalists were pro-American, pro-Western, and the left-wing uh, politicians uh, the environmentalists, etc., were pro-Soviet Union, pro-Russia. Pro what we have now in Europe is exactly the reverse. It's the reverse. The right conservatives are pro-Putin. I say pro-Putin, not pro-Russia. Okay? And they have this kind of illusion that one day they will be able to create this Eurasian economic system, uh, which will be profitable. Okay, that's the right wing, right conservative. The left wing are pro-Obama. So we're not in the situation of the Cold War, at least in Europe. You're saying it's a personality contest between Obama and Okay, change Obama and put somebody else. I don't want to no, say who, no. but put somebody else. It's not going to change anything. You know, pro-democratic values, pro-liberal, pro-left wing, pro etc. Even if you put someone who is not from that political party, they, the, the left wing today, of the, the, the leftist parties in Europe are pro-American, value-based. Mm -hmm. Regarding the idea of 
one side ascribing to like just war doctrine, you know, war or conflict within legal means, and the other um, beyond those legal means. Mm -hmm. So, where would you qualify that in a prisoner warfare, or would you not? Okay, I'm not sure that I understood your question, but okay. how how does that relate to asymmetric? How does the just war? Uh, concept relate to asymmetric warfare that that you can pull a stop and that uh, everything is permitted in war is that no so my question is um, in the different the different sides yeah. if you will so one of the um, concepts of asymmetric warfare that I studied is this concept that you have one side who operates in a legalistic ah, okay. way but the other side is not and that's one of the ways it makes it asymmetric yeah. is that included in your two definitions of asymmetric warfare or yes. a different aspect or somewhere else? No, I'm, I'm very happy to consider that also as different means, yes. You can pull the stops, you can ignore international law, regulation, etc. Uh, yes, I'm happy to, to, to include that in an asymmetry of the means. The fact of the matter is, I have to be honest, uh, full disclosure, uh, I used to work for the International Committee of the Red Cross. So I'm not going to tell you that and not only for institutional purposes or reasons, but I am absolutely convinced no country, no party to a conflict will ever win a war by, uh, you know, cruel treatment, by breaching laws, because as I said before, the objective is winning the peace, it's not winning the war. And the fact of the matter is, I think today in, in, in many ways, people who fight wars are very pragmatic. Um, there are uh, having sanctuaries or having places that are off limits uh, for, for, for combat operations, etc., makes a lot of sense. Neutrali neutralizing certain areas makes a lot of sense to, to combatants. Okay? And of course, terrorists will naturally target these quote-unquote safe zones for all sorts of reasons. But, but terrorists don't win wars. It's just a fact. Historically, they don't win wars. Their objective is insecurity. And if you want to read the greatest book on insurgency, the greatest book, the greatest, greatest writer on revolutionary warfare, the, uh, on asymmetric war, read Mao, Chairman Mao. And, and Mao says very well, and he knew something about it, uh, the, the, the difficulty for these insurgency groups is once they have gained a little bit of a momentum, once they have created the situation of insurgency, of insecurity, etc., then it is very difficult for them to, to make the next move, the next step into uh, a respectable political actor, uh, uh, to have a, a, a political future, if you, if you will, and, and this is the, the, the most difficult uh, phase of, of the evolution of these insurgency movements. But uh, he himself was successful. Sorry? He himself was successful. Now. Yes, of course he was successful. Uh, one of the things I learned when I was uh, teaching in China was um, why are there all of these different stars on the Chinese flag? And that tells you why 
uh, Mao was successful. Um, why are there all these stars? Because one, the, the large star represents the Central Communist Party uh, of China. Okay, fair. One represents the students because they were, you know, supporters of the revolutionary movement, etc. Okay, legit. Uh, one was the, for the workers. One was for the uh, farmers, the peasants, etc., etc. One was for the intellectuals because you have to give them something. The last one was for the national bourgeoisie. Excuse me, my Chinese is rusted. For the national bourgeoisie, so I say, excuse me, what, what do you mean by national bourgeoisie? Oh, it's the capitalists, it's the entrepreneurs, it's the, the business owners, it's the wealthy people, etc. Excuse me, which, which part of Marx did you not read <laughs> to, to, to tell me something like this? Oh, no, no, but you understand, you know, Chairman Mao was very pragmatic and he said, the national bourgeoisie, those people who are proud and who help our insurgency movement, etc. Well, you know, they can join us and we will reward them, etc. Yeah. So Mao was a very pragmatic person. And he says himself, insurgency has very little to do with ideology. To, to come back to terrorism, insurgency terrorism, uh, there is also a, th a theory that the more extreme, the more uh, indiscriminate, the, 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 the more horrible the, the massacres committed by a terrorist group, uh, it, it means that they're fading out and that they've lost a, a lot of support, ground-based support. So it's a paradox, but when a terrorist or an insurgency, uh, a terrorist group or in, an insurgent movement actually is prepared to make peace demonstrates that they are legitimate, that there's popular support, that they represent a large segment of the population, and it, it actually gives them legitimacy. So on this indiscriminate terror and, and, and butchery and, and killing, etc., is rather a demonstration of the weakness of these movements and not so much that they are being successful. As I said before, there's a difference between security and insecurity, between the, the um, objective aspects of security and insecurity, which is fundamentally a, a gut feeling. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an emotion. Okay? I'll, I, I give this, um, I, I'm an advisor in Switzerland to uh, uh, police forces, and I say, you know, look at your statistics on law enforcement. Uh, look at the number of um, pickpockets, rapes, uh, incidents that have taken place in, in the various streets in Geneva. You may have a, just think about this for, for 10 seconds, you have a dark alley, okay, a dark alley, um, no light, uh, water dripping from the sides, uh, you have all sorts of uh, uh, things that are littered there, etc. Is, is this a security problem? Well, no. If you look at a, a security map, the number of incidents of rapes, of attacks, of muggings that have taken place in that street, probably you will find zero because people will see this, they will identify this as a risk, okay, insecurity, and they will take another street. So you see how security and insecurity are two
completely different things. And we have to deal with security, but we also have to deal with this sentiment of insecurity. It's like temperature and heat. Uh, I don't know how many degrees Fahrenheit in, in this room. That's an objective number. But some people may be cold. Some people may be next to a window and, and feel a chill. Uh, other people who have been speaking for almost two hours feel that it's kind of hot, <laughs> and so on and so forth. So you know, it's an endless debate. But we have to deal with the heat, and we have to deal with the temperature. We have to deal with this sentiment of insecurity, make people feel safer, and we also have to deal with the concrete issues. Will be sorry. Will be that the a better way to fight against terrorism because sometimes governments uh, show strength but that doesn't uh, need to be uh, for the people like a, like a feeling of, of security most of the time they do uh, the contrary no? mm -hmm. but how we how do we fight against terrorism if we do not uh, know what it is no? because we lack of a concept of terrorism and we do not know uh, this difference between security and insecurity. No, that, that are not opposites exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm happy to advise you or your government on how to win the global war on terror. Uh, that will be a long and, and costly undertaking. Uh, but to, to try and put this in a nutshell, uh, the, the most incredible um, human capacity that I can think of is um, memory loss. People forget. Okay. Um, Tony Blair, uh, Tony Blair is my personal hero. Um, <clears throat> Tony Blair managed to admit on a Saturday morning that there were never any weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and that he was sorry and that, okay, let's just turn the page. That is brilliant. That is brilliant. And then the, the, the journalists were so startled because you know he just launched this out in a press briefing which has not had nothing to do with the war in Iraq, etc. But people were so amazed that you know they, they couldn't respond, couldn't answer back, etc. And on the Monday, uh, of course, this came back in another briefing, and Tony Blair, you know, regal, regal better than the Queen of England simply said, well, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about this already. We've, we've talked about this. We've already don't, don't make me repeat myself. People forget. Uh, you want to know what the problem, what, what the best way to resolve a conflict is? Okay, as much as I hate to say it, you need another crisis, another focus of attention. And the news, the media, the journalists will focus on something else. Um, you want to talk about uh, migration, as we were talking about migration. Well, historically, it's very simple. Uh, you know this expression, segundos, okay? Uh, people from the second generation, etc. Okay, who, who are the most xenophobic, the most racist, the people who feel the most threatened by an immigration wave? It's the pre members of the previous immigration wave. It's just a fact. So the only way to resolve quickly, easily, that kind of a problem, it's okay, you need to focus on the next immigration wave. People forget. And the journalists will help you, help you.
because you have a new, you bring a new subject, bring a new topic. You know, let's go to Mars. I'm not joking. Let's go to Mars and and let's have people think about going to Mars for the pa for the next ten or fifteen years. People will forget the, that there was ever a war in Iraq. I mean, not you, but. 80%, 70% of the population will, will think of, you know, Mars, great project. Huh? How about, you know, a, um, express delivery by drones? Okay, well, people will forget that drones were ever these killing machines, etc., because they'll be thinking of something else. That's kind of a sadistic, cruel, crude way of, of saying things. But if I have to advise a, a politicians, I will, I, I will say, you know, okay move the attention to the, to the next thing. 